So the last song that we sung uh, in our worship set is a classic one. I- I'm sure you probably have all heard it. Maybe someone hasn't, um, but I would, I would be shocked. The song Amazing Grace. And uh, it- it's like this, this quintessential hymn that, you know, everyone would know if they, if they were to say, you know, sing a, sing a hymn, recite something. That would be probably the one who would come to mind first, right? It was written by a guy named John Newton, not to be confused with Wayne Newton. Any Wayne Newton fans out there? Yeah? What's the song that he sung? Wasn't it, didn't he sing that, It's Not Unusual? It's Not Unusual to Be Loved. That was Tom Jones. You're off. Wayne Newton and his delightful black locks of hair is not the same as John Newton. John Newton actually born in the 1700s in England. And to know John Newton's history is kind of interesting. Uh, John actually grew up and got into the slave trade. And he was a slave trader for years, uh, rode on boats. Actually, really interesting life if you ever want to read about him. Pretty crazy. He actually was a slave for a period of time, which is really crazy. Um, but at the end of his life, actually realized his ways, wrote some um, papers that helped uh, the abolition movement, stood with the abolition movement at the end uh, of it as the end of the 1700s kind of worked down, um, or the, yeah, early 1700s. But um, really, really amazing stuff that happened in his life. And he wrote this song, which actually isn't named Amazing Grace. Did you know that? It's actually named Faith's Review and Expectation. Amazing Grace simply stuck because that's what everyone remembers it as. I love this song. Um, I always have loved this song. It's, it's one of those where, um, I don't know, it just seems like whatever he was tapped into when he wrote that song, he captured something so uh, brilliantly in a short amount of words that it just instantly connects with me when I hear it. Maybe it's because we do hear it when we're at such a young age, especially in our uh, Christian American culture. But that song, it, it just connects with me when I hear it um, so often. It has this very simple but beautiful imagery. And perhaps one of the, um, the biggest lines in a song, one that, that everyone would know from it, is this line that says, I, I once was lost, but now I'm found. It's, it's a great statement about this uh, relationship with, with Jesus that he's experiencing. Now, I'm not calling into question the uh, biblical authority or scriptural relevance of John Newton's uh, song. I wouldn't do that. It's a great song. But what I want to submit to you this morning is that that's actually not enough. That simply being lost and found actually... Um, that isn't the fullness of what's supposed to happen in our life. Um, that's a beginning instead. Being lost and then being found is great. It's a, it's a reality of meeting Jesus, but I don't think that we were ever meant to stop there. In fact, I believe that that's kind of the, the first step, and then there's another step that comes on the back side of that. And that's why I want to talk to you uh, today about our core value, not lost to found, lost to finding. If you ever wonder, um, as a church, we have 13 core values, 13 things that um, God gave to us that kind of direct us as, as a church. If you want, you can look them up online. You can read them. They're printed out at guest services. You can get them, pick them up, realize what kind of church we are. Um, I've preached a little more than half of them. You can go back online and watch all the messages that relate to them. But this morning, I want to break this down a little bit for us as we go through it. I want to start by, by taking kind of a step back. And it's this. What we have to do is we have to establish why this is important. And the reason for us as a church is, is this. When we look at Scripture, we realize the fact that God is interested, super interested in the lost. That the lost is one of his um, biggest focuses we see throughout Scripture. 
that this idea of being about the lost, for the lost, directed toward the lost, happens over and over and over again in Scripture. And we see how he's so keyed into it. Um, Luke 19.10, this is Jesus talking about himself. He says, for the Son of Man, and that's a name that Jesus used for himself, he says, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. So speaking about himself and his own mission here on earth, he says, I came for those who are lost. Jesus' own interpretation of what he's here for. But when he was here, Jesus taught parables all the time. And what parables are for is to try to break down kind of the, the spirit of God or the, the um, I guess, kind of like the emotion and the personality of God. He would use these parables to kind of describe a situation in a way that we would grasp it. And Luke 15 is this really awesome chapter where Jesus is kind of trying to explain some of of God's character, and he uses these stories, these parables. And I want to just look through them real quick. If you have a Bible, you want to go to Luke 15, that's awesome. We'll have it up here too. If you have a phone, you want to go on there. If you have a smartphone, go ahead and go download YouVersion, our friends at Life Church. They had like was a million downloads or something like that. Amazing. $100 million, something like that. Crazy. Download the Bible on your phone. But Luke 15, it starts uh, talking about um, basically this, this story of these lost objects. It says this, Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. And this made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. Oh, don't you love Jesus? Hanging out with all the sinners. All the religious people couldn't stand him. So Jesus told him the story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. In the same way, there's more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. That's a pretty stunning statement. Jesus says that just like a farmer who lost one sheep goes off to find it and comes back, he'll throw a party for the fact that he, he found that one lost sheep. He doesn't throw a party for the other 99 sticking around. Now, it, I think that that can kind of make us feel kind of unfair for a second if we're Christians and we think, well, why is that more important? You have to look at God's character. You have to just look at God's character. And the reality is sometimes I thought, that's kind of weird, isn't it? Isn't it just as exciting that they're staying? But God has this hyper focus, this, this love and passion to seek that which is lost and to bring it back to be found. And he says that they celebrate, basically, when one is brought back, that there's this, this party. He goes on and he tells the story of a lost coin. I'm not going to read all that for you, but a woman loses a, a coin. She sweeps the floor. She finds it. And it says this, when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I found my lost coin. And he says this, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. So he says, again, when, when a sinner is lost away from God, when they come back and repent and get that right relationship with God again, a party goes down in heaven. He continues on and he tells this last one, which I've shared with you before if you've been in this church uh, for a while. If not, I highly recommend reading Luke 15, 11 through 32. Amazing story of a lost son, a son who goes away, who lives his life um, however he pleases, finally decides to come back to his father because he's flat broke and he needs help. And when the father gets his son back, he throws a big old party. 
And actually, the, the other son is actually really offended because he says, you know, basically, why are you throwing a party for this bum son of yours who ran off? And he says, I've been here this whole time, and you're not throwing a party for me. And he says, listen, you know, everything I have is yours. I'm not saying that you're not still a great son, but your brother was lost, and now he's found, and we're going to celebrate. And he uses this story, these stories over and over again to, to show this depiction of our God's heart, of our God's personality when it comes to those that are lost. And it shows that there's this, this deep longing, this deep love, this deep passion for those who are lost to return them to right relationship. We see that in these stories, whether the ratio is 1 to 100, 1 to 10, or 1 to 2, 1%, 10%, or 50%, God is interested in the lost. He's looking towards the lost to bring them back. What I want to say that for is to establish the foundation of why we would be talking about not lost to found, lost to finding. Because we have a God, the God who we look to as our salvation, who is passionate, fiery passionate, about those who are lost. But it's not simply enough that we just have a God who's passionate about the lost. The reality is, is that he wants us to be passionate about the lost as well. He wants his followers to be passionate about the lost just like he is. When Jesus was on earth, he picked out 12 guys to follow him right away, okay? These are his disciples, the guys who spent the most time with Jesus. And after he picked these guys out, what's interesting is he didn't have them spend all of their time simply focusing on manicuring their own faith. He didn't just sit them down and say, perfect and work out every little detail of your faith and make sure you got it all figured out just perfect and, and make sure you understand every little thing. What's interesting is Jesus very early began to explain to these men that their lives were to be about those who didn't know Jesus yet. What's interesting is, is, I don't know if you guys have ever read this, but the, the original call of Jesus to these men, he walks by and he finds these men in a lake, and he decides he's going to call them to be his disciples, and he, he calls out to them. Do you remember what he calls out to them? Did he say, come, and I will show you how to believe deeper in God? No. They say, come and I will, I will show you how to impress people with biblical knowledge and understanding. No. Did he say, come and I will show you how to remain uncorrupted from the world and pure and holy? No. This is what he says in Matthew 4, 18 through 20. It says, one day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew throwing a net into the water. For they were fishing, um, they were fishing for a living. And Jesus called out to them and said, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. The initial call of the disciples wasn't to understanding God more, wasn't to all those things. The very first thing Jesus said to these men is, Come and follow me, and I'm going to teach you how to tell people about me. Come and follow me, and your life is going to be about them. Come and follow me, and you're going to see that what we're going to do is we're going to, instead of spending all of our time trying to collect fish and, and bring them in, we're going to bring people in to a knowledge of who I am. The very first initial calling of the disciples was to a life of, of not just understanding and knowing Jesus more and loving Jesus more. It was a, a calling to step into a responsibility for those who did not know Jesus yet. 
the very first thing he said to them. God isn't interested in just taking you from lost to found. He is interested in taking you from lost to found, but he isn't just interested in that. He's interested in taking you from lost to finding, from lost all the way to finding. We see this need um, as he's talking to the disciples. He's walking along with them just a little while later in Matthew, Matthew 9, 36. And he's, he's working with all these crowds, and it says there's just tons and tons of people who Jesus is interacting with. And he says this to uh, the disciples. It says in, in 936, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, these men, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into his fields. When Jesus is with these men, he says, look around. He says, there are so many people so many people who need to experience, who need to be connected with God, who need to feel a touch from the Lord. And he said the problem isn't the fact that there is no harvest. The problem isn't the fact that there are no people who need to meet Jesus. I petition to say it's the exact same thing today. The problem isn't there isn't people who want to know Jesus. The problem is the workers are few. And he says pray. Man, pray that God will turn lost into finding, that he will turn people into passionate workers who will go out in the field and collect this harvest. I mean, doesn't it make sense? That's why Jesus talked like this. I I love, man, I mean, if, if you, if you ever listen to a preacher who makes the Bible boring, run, okay? Because you have to work so hard to make the Bible boring, okay? It, it's so gripping and so interesting and so applicable when he teaches that, right? There's harvest, there's, there's a field full of ripe fruit. But the problem is, is we can't get it all because we don't have enough workers. It makes perfect sense, right? And when you pair it where he's saying, the harvest is all these people who need to understand about Jesus, who are ready to experience Christ. The problem isn't they're not out there. The problem is we only have a couple people here who are willing to go out and work. Pray that we would have more workers. That's the lost to finding, not just to found. Jesus sees that the disciples needed to pray for more, more workers. Interesting enough, a chapter later than this, they commissioned 72 more men to be walk with them who were underneath these disciples who were going out and who were sharing this. That he taught this down. It wasn't just the 12 that he poured into, but he had another whole group of men that he began to send out to tell people that the kingdom of God was coming. In the very next chapter, we see that um, Jesus is talking to his disciples and this is what's interesting, is, is he's trying to kind of explain um, what they're to do. He's going to send them out, and he's going to send them out to, to explain this, this, this gospel, I guess, basically, as Jesus was beginning to put it. And I think he puts it so perfectly, and it's something that we need to understand. And, and when I read it, it will seem small, but then I, w- I want to break it down for you, okay? Matthew 10, 7 through 8. He says to the disciples, Go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, and cast out demons. But this last line is what I want us to focus on. It says, give as freely as you have received. Give as freely as you have received. And it's it's in this verse that I believe that, that Jesus initiates the very first explanation of what we call sharing our faith. Sharing our faith. 
And I think that it's really important because a lot of time, it kind of sounds like we talk about like pushing our faith on people or um, trying to sell our faith to people. But see, what Jesus is talking about is he's talking about sharing something that's so miraculously been given to you. How on earth could you hold it back? The disciples had received this great gift in Jesus, this understanding of, of God wanting a relationship with us. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it says this, God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it, for we're God's masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. You see, it says that there's this amazing gift that's been given to us that we didn't earn. We didn't somehow get good enough for God to offer us something. This was completely just grace, that while we were still far away from God, that he, he paid for our sins. This entire story, obviously, the disciples were living it right then. I mean, um, only a few chapters later, only a few months later, as the disciples were with him, they watched Jesus die on the cross. And that was this amazing, amazing act of love that God did, where he paid for the sins of all of us, of the entire world, with his death. He paid for all of these wages of sin. And I, I'm, I'm passionate about that, about explaining that this isn't some sort of super, you know, mystic, weird thing about faith. It makes sense. All of us sin. Sin equals death. Jesus died to pay for our sins so we don't have to die and can live eternally. It makes sense. But this amazing gift is given to us. And what I think is interesting is even Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it says that there's this amazing gift, but then it says, God saved you so that you can do those good things that he planned for us to do. It, it includes us. You see, the, the, the verse doesn't just kind of end at, he saved you, now you're good. The verse ends at, he saved you, now go tell people. There were good things planned out for you to do. There were good things planned out for you to continue to do after you were, you were found. It wasn't just to get to found, but now there's, there's more past that. This verse and, and this entire story we see with Jesus and the disciples spells out a very, very clear statement that we need to understand as Christians, if we're Jesus followers, that on Jesus' team, there are no bench warmers. None. None. Jesus does not have a bench. He does not need bench warmers. That in, in the game that we're playing, in, the, in the, the activity that we're doing, everybody is in everybody is in. There's no sitting down and warming the benches. He says, if you've experienced this relationship with Jesus, if you've experienced this amazing gift that's come to you, it is now your duty to get out there, get on the field, and begin to share that faith with other people. That's our duty. We're not just lost to found, but lost to finding, helping explain that and share it. But I think this statement that Jesus said, give as freely as you have received, is so vital because like I said, what it does is it teaches this idea that I think we need to grasp of, of sharing our faith. Like I said, not trying to sell our faith, not trying to, to push our faith, not trying to pawn off our faith, but see, sharing our faith. Think about it this way. If, if you were given knowledge, understanding, that completely changed your life, that radically saved your life from an end that you didn't want. How on earth could you not share that with someone else around you who was in the exact same situation? I mean, if you were sick, someone taught you a cure, 
and someone else was sick right next to you with the same disease, how could you walk past them and not share with them, I know the answer? I know the answer to the sickness. I know the answer. We could say the exact same thing about the grace that we're offered. If someone has a solution to a problem and won't share it, what would you call them? Selfish? Bad? Evil? That they would know something and not share it with somebody who needs it. There's a story just like this of of grace being given and then not being reciprocated. It's a story in Matthew 18. And it's, uh, it's another parable that Jesus was teaching. In Matthew 18, 23 through 34, this is what it says. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. And in the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. That was legal back then. That was legit. You get sold into slavery, you would work until you paid off the debt, then you could be free again. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, Please be patient with me. I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him and released him and forgave his debt. See, he didn't just release him. Didn't just say, okay, I'll give you time. It says he forgave him of his debt. Not only did he say, okay, I won't throw you, I won't sell you as a slave. Um, Get it when you can. He literally just said, you know what? Just don't bother paying me back. Just go and live your life. Completely forgives him of millions of dollars of debt. It says, but when the man left the king, He went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me. I'll pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put into prison until the debt could be paid in full. says, when some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man who, had, who he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. There's a story of a man who was forgiven much and he could walk away from being forgiven millions of dollars and completely forget the grace that he was given and not share it with somebody else. And he says, what he calls him is, is evil. Now, what the, this, this parable was specifically targeted to, what Jesus was talking about, was us forgiving the people around us, which is a whole other message for a whole other day I'd love to preach to you. That all of us have to forgive those around us or God won't forgive us. It's biblical. But I think that this picture could be very easily applied as well to us who have experienced grace. That if we have experienced this, this amazing grace that's been given to us, how on earth could we not then extend that grace to others? How on earth could we not then share that with other people and be able to uh, you know, change their lives radically by them being able to understand the same thing, the same grace that has been given to us, sharing our faith, the things that have been given to us? Like I said, God doesn't just want us to go from lost to found, but from lost to finding. We see a really great picture of this in the last words of Jesus. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. He says this to his disciples, and these are his parting words. He says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. One of the last things that Jesus felt necessary to tell his disciples 
was that your life is about them. Your life is about going and making more disciples. It's about going and and sharing this to to create more disciples. And it says to pass on the teaching. So if their responsibility was to make disciples, what do you think the responsibility of their disciples would be? To make more disciples. The same responsibility would be handed to them. And some people would look at this and think, this is just some sort of big, weird, biblical pyramid scheme, right? Twelve guys, find this many guys, find this many. It's this weird pyramid scheme. But it's not. It's a partnership scheme. It's a partnership scheme that, that um, a few people would get together and begin to pray and share and share their faith with their friends. And when they do and they start a relationship with Jesus, then all of them would work together again to share their faith. And what happens is something like this. An entire church can start because a few people began to share their faith with others and share what had happened in their life and share how Jesus had changed their life. And it can keep multiplying and growing and growing until you can change an entire city, until you can change an entire community. I, um, I was doing this message and I was thinking about this. Um, <clears throat> because what's weird is we can have a tendency um, to hear this message and then still not do anything about it in our hearts, not to let it change us at all. Um, not to let it, it change us in, in response to how should we be living our lives, should we be sharing our faith. And what I did is I, I thought this is a, is a viable thing. All, all you guys who've experienced Jesus, actually a relationship with Jesus, can you just take a step back for a second and think what if, what if the person who shared it with you wouldn't have? What if the, the weird person who annoyed you, who was a Christian, who bugged you, didn't bug you? What, what if uh, the, the mom or the dad who prayed for you and, and would try to instill good faith in you never did it? And I think back to my own life and I think, how on earth could I deny somebody else what has been given me? Man, I, I, I would be terrified to think, what if somebody wouldn't have taken that step? One of mine would be obviously my mom and, and her brother. Her brother calling one night and saying, Deb, you need to go to church. You need to go to church. If you die, you're going to go to hell. That's a harsh statement by a brother, right? And she says, I'll go with you. My mom gave her life to Jesus, and she led me and my, my sister to come to Jesus with her. And you think sometimes it's just like, what would happen if it wasn't for people being willing to, to maybe step out sometimes and, and cause some controversy? Step out sometimes and, and, and share that faith even when it's awkward. Step out sometimes and, and invite somebody. I mean, one of the, I mean, some of the people who I've um, helped lead to Christ have been some of the weirdest examples in my life where I would have never thought that it would be them. And I said, hey, would you like to come to a Bible study? Yeah, I'll come. I'm like, what? You come to a Bible study? We've only hung out like twice. Yeah, I'll come and give their life to Jesus. And you think, what would happen if I wouldn't be faithful enough just to take one little step? Just to take one little step, put myself out in in some way just to share my faith in a little bit. And and the grace that has been offered to me, understanding it, if you're a Christian, the grace that has been offered to you, that when you walk by all of these people every day, that the same grace needs to be afforded to them, but but who's going to share it with them? It's you and I. That's the call of the disciples. That's the call of us if we're his disciples. No, we don't just go from lost to found. We go from lost to finding. Sharing the greatest news that ever happened to our life 
telling other people about a faith that has changed us radically. What does this mean for us at Acts? Our core value, not lost to found, lost to finding. And what does that mean for us as a church? Because you guys are all part of Acts, right? Well, it means this. It means that we are passionate about the lost. We are passionate about the lost. It means that we spend a lot of time, we spend a lot of energy, we spend a lot of money in order to make sure that we are reaching people who are lost and we are communicating Jesus to them. A really good example would be what we're doing right now, right? With Movies on the Move, thousands upon thousands of dollars, thousands upon thousands of man hours of work because we want to engage with those who are lost and share the good news of Jesus. It means that we believe the goal, though, is not just for people to go and receive salvation and be found, but to come to a place of finding. And that's where it comes into the fact that, that we want to see you become everything that God wants you to be. That's where we have our growth track. And if you look to your right on that wall, that's our growth track. Loved, saved, educated, trusted, and released. Back at our guest services, you can pick up a growth track. And we have some simple things spelled out that you can walk through in this church so you can help develop your faith. You can work alongside with the Holy Spirit working in your life to begin to develop yourself so you can be a force, man, to, to tell people about Jesus, to, to share that with the lost. But not just that, obviously, um, is, is we incorporate in our church lots and lots of opportunities for you to get your feet wet in small ways. In small ways. It's why we do things like these outreaches. That's why we have things like volunteers on Sunday morning. That before maybe even you're ready to walk across the street to your neighbor and share your faith with them, when you bump into them and, and God comes up and you have that opportunity, maybe where it needs to start is right here where maybe it's a little bit safer environment and you're going to talk to someone else about your faith. Maybe when we start subgroups, which are going to be coming up in another month, it gives you that opportunity to join a group with people and begin to talk about your faith for the very first time not just to sit personally, quietly by yourself, but to share your faith and what you think about God, what's happening in your life, how Jesus has changed your life. Those things are all so important. That's why we do those things, is so that you can develop into the person you're supposed to be. Every one of you, if you have a relationship with Jesus, is to be finding. Not just found, but finding. You're to be a force for Jesus to share that faith with those around you. God is all about the lost, and he's insistent that we are too. So what I have for you today is this. What can you do? You can join up with Acts. There's opportunities to serve. You can grab a growth track. You can talk to your pastors. In your own personal life, I can tell you this. Use inopportune times to share your faith. Because what I found in my life is if you always wait for a time that's, that's perfect, it never comes. It never comes. It's always awkward. It's always odd. But embrace the awkward. Embrace the odd. There will be a situation that will come up, and I guarantee you this because I've been praying for it, okay? Every one of you in the next couple weeks is going to experience a moment. I'm praying for all of you. Holy Spirit's going to get you. I'm praying that all of you are going to have a moment in the next couple weeks where you have somebody says something and it brings to mind, I should share my faith in some little way. And that's your opportunity whether or not you're going to step forward or you're going to shrink back. And I want to tell you, don't shrink back. The smallest little thing can make a difference. You simply saying, yeah, you know, actually, I go to church on Sunday mornings. It's actually really cool. It's not that scary. Jesus is actually really interesting. That can make everything different to somebody. And when that moment comes, and it's going to come in the next couple weeks, man, I pray that you would step forward confidently 
and you would realize that you are part of the finding. Not just found, but you are finding. And you would share it as well too. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for today. And I thank you, God, for um, this core value you spelled out so clearly for us as a church. I pray, Jesus Christ, that um, you would just let it resound in our heart, that it would echo inside of it and become more and more clear each day. I pray, Jesus Christ, that you would help us to realize that we are called to be more than just simply found, but that we are called to be part of your hands involved with finding. I pray, Jesus Christ, that you would, you would help us to step up when that moment comes in these next few weeks. I pray, God, that you would give us the courage to step forward and to share our faith, even in just a small way, that if we've been given this grace, that we would extend to others and that we would let them know about it as well, too. Jesus, I thank you so much for this day. I pray that you would bless each and every person who is here. I pray that you would um, bless them in, in every, every way possible. And I just thank you for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.